In today's episode, we're speaking to Jeff Lerner. From a broke jazz musician to over 100 million in online sales, Jeff Lerner's story and message are now inspiring millions. After a decade of building multiple online businesses to rate figures and twice landing on the Inc. 5000, Jeff turned his focus to educating and inspiring entrepreneurs about the power of entrepreneurship in the modern economy. Let's speak to Jeff and find out how he changed his life by changing his mindset. Let's find out. Money Mindset with Girl Khan podcast will help you to break free from your limiting beliefs, reverse your money shame, and blast through your money blocks so that you can live a life of unlimited abundance. In this podcast, we will talk about energy tools and mindset strategies that will help you to understand and change your relationship with money, whether you're in a job, profession or working on your passion. Change your relationship with money to change your life. I'm your host, Gul Khan. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome. This is Gul Khan, your money mindset expert. And today I'm so excited. We have the amazing, the one and only Jeff Lerner. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, thank you so much, Gul. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much, Jeff. We've been trying to get you on this podcast for a while now. Jeff, we've heard your intro. Everybody knows how amazing you are, but please, in your own words, tell everybody what it is that you do. So they've heard how amazing I am. Now you want the truth, right? <laughs> yeah. No, you are uh, amazing. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, I I would say that I am on a, a crusade to unlock human potential, but in a way that is not self-helpy and touchy-feely and pie in the sky, but like very practical. Mm -hmm. Like, like what does it actually take to decode a human life and create uh, even a, a formula or a set of best practices that allow a person to design the life that they, that they wish for, that they were born for, and that especially allows them to express and manifest the best version of themselves. Like what is, what is it, you know, like in a very practical, tactical, real world way, not just like, oh, you know, count to seven and manifest your dreams, but like, no, what, like, what do I actually wake up in the morning and go do? And, and I am really trying to distill that into applicable formulas. And then I have created one of the fastest growing education platforms in the world, which is called Entra, where we basically teach these frameworks to people. And a lot of that, you know, as a practical matter involves how to make, make more money. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our training is around building certain types of businesses, but, but it's always with the intention of supporting and designing the life that you want, not just purely trying to grow your bank account, if that makes of sense. Course. Of course it does. It does. And so what I'm, I'm to understand is you're basically trying to distill uh, tangible steps you can take on a daily basis to, to create those physical results in your bank accounts using those spiritual concepts that we are all familiar with from books like Think and Grow Rich and from Bob Proctor and other, other thought leaders like that. Am I, am I, am I, is that, is that my mind to understand? Is that what you I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, that's a part of it, but it's not just creating, you know, quantifiable, tangible results in your bank account. It's also in your health. It's yeah. in your relationship. Abundance in general. Yeah, basically abundance in, in general. Yes. Yeah. Across the entirety of a human life. Yeah, I agree. I, I do agree. I think money is, I mean, I am a money mindset person, so money is important to me, but I I do fully appreciate money is important up to a certain level. Thereafter, uh, other things take over. And I actually do say this to, to my people. 
that money is or material goals are great. And I, I encourage everybody to set amazing material goals, like the Bentley, the house, the, 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 the vacation home, whatever. But those end results are end up becoming byproducts because what we're after is growth. And growth is what allows us to become the best version of ourselves. And this is very, very important. So now talk us through, Jeff. Now talk us through your journey because I was looking into your life. It's been an interesting ride. How does you know does a young chap get to having the, the multi, I think you're currently eight-figure operation nine-figure company? How do you get to that level coming from your background? So talk us through, talk the audience through how did you start and how did you end up being Jeff Lerner, the amazing person that you are now? Well, it's a is a, a work in progress. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I I think that I you know, there's this metaphor in, in society of like the red pill, right? Like the moment of enlightenment when you, you see the code behind the screen. Mm-hmm. And I think for whatever reason, through whatever circumstances, I think I took that red pill when I was maybe 12 years old. Oh, um, I, very I, remember, I remember having a very profound and pretty overwhelming experience very early on in life. And, and honestly, it probably went back to even before that. And I actually have a theory on why. In fact, I think it might have even happened as early as like three years old. Some of my earliest memories were were always of this this sense of be of like separation. Like I don't I don't fit here. I don't understand this world that I've been given to exist mm-hmm. within. It just didn't make sense to me. Like like people seem to have priorities that didn't make sense, and people seem to celebrate things that didn't seem like celebration worthy. And they seem to neglect things that seem very important to me. And I remember this was my experience as a child. And I think a lot of it is because I was born with a genetic condition and I was bullied a lot. I looked different as a kid. And so I think it, it always gave me this sense of being like a stranger in a strange land. Like, like I never, I never fit. And I remember the defining experience of so much of my childhood was trying to minimize my differences and, and achieve comfort through assimilation. Like if I could just get everyone to accept me, if I could just be like people, but in the back of my mind, I knew that was incongruent because everything I was seeing around me, I was like, I don't want to fit in with this because it doesn't make sense to me. But at the same time, I don't like feeling alone. Mm. So I'm going to fake it and try to fit. And then in my high school years around 16, something just flipped and it was through a series of events that don't really matter, right? We take the whole show and I could tell you the story, but the point is it flipped to realizing, wait a minute, these differences that I've always been so embarrassed of, or that I've thought were because I had a a disorder or a problem or an, or a, a genetic disease, like dis that caused me such dis-ease, such discomfort, right? Like, wait, everybody's different. Some people are just, they were physically given a little better costume to hide it behind a little, a little more, you know, not better, but you know what I mean? A little more, uh, a costume that's less obvious, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, but actually all the cool things that are happening in my life and all the good relationships that I value and all the, all the fun experiences that I'm having, they all seem to be things that are tied into what makes me different, not what makes me the same. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's actually power in distinction. Maybe we weren't created to all be little clones of each other and try to fit in and keep up with the Joneses and attend the right schools and major in the right subjects and get the right jobs and drive the right cars. And maybe, maybe it's actually what different, what makes us different is what makes us unique and special. And in fact, that's what unifies us Mm. is how different we all are. And it's, and my whole worldview switched 
And so I literally, at 16 years old, I dropped out of high school. I said, wait a minute, this is just job training. This is, this is preparatory. They literally call it prep school, preparatory yeah. school. I am being prepped for a life I don't want. Hmm. Why am I here? And I dropped out and I convinced my parents. I'm like, listen, I'll t- I don't care. I'll flip burgers. You will find me living under a bridge. I will never say that this was your fault. I will never blame you. I will never regret my decisions. Please let me drop out. This is not the life for me. And they did. And uh, I, 16. Okay. I dropped out of 16 and they said, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I know uh, from middle school that I'm, I actually have some musical aptitude and, you know, I could play the guitar. I could play the drums. I could play the bass. I could play the violin. Like, you know, I could learn an instrument of all the instruments. I think the one that's probably got the most financial upside is the piano. It's the easiest to make a living. If you can, you know, play everybody's favorite tune, you're a one man band. You don't need a rhythm section. You, you can sing and get paid, you know, double. So it was either piano or guitar, but I felt like I would probably have to lug less gear around as a pianist because a lot of places already have a piano, but that if you get, you know, you got to bring your guitar and your amp and all this stuff. So it was like a very practical decision. And I was like, Hey, I'll bet I could teach myself to be a piano player. I said to my parents, I was like, you guys were already going to support me until I turned 18, right? And they were like, yeah. And I said, okay, give me two years. Support me until I turn 18 and just give me a piano. And I will and I will make it so that by the time I turn 18, you don't have to support me anymore, which is all you're worried about, right? And, and so I did. I practiced piano like 10, 12 hours a day for about two years. And by the time I was 18, I was able to start getting gigs. And I went out into the world and I actually, all through my twenties, I had about a, you know, 10 year career as a professional piano player. And it was wonderful. I, I made, I made, you know, 50, 60 grand a year. Mm-hmm. I did okay, but I got to play some amazing gigs. I played in the homes of billionaires. I got to meet some of the most successful, powerful people in the world. That's where I, be- I decided to, or, or I took an interest in entrepreneurship because, you know, I'd go play a, I'd go play a gig for a hundred bucks at a some nightclub. And then the next night I'd go play a private party at a, at a, at a house, you know, at a, at a $10 million house and I'd get paid $2,000 or, or I'd get paid a thousand dollars and they give me a thousand dollar tip. And I'm like, I want to, who are these people? I want to, I want to live like that. And they were all entrepreneurs. They were all people that had started companies. And so I'm like, Oh, well, I can maybe maybe there's this other path I could be on where I'd still have that freedom and that flexibility. I could live where I want. I could do what I want, but I wouldn't have to settle for 50 or 60 grand a year because, hmm. frankly, life is getting kind of hard. I live in a big city. It's expensive. I tried to get married. It didn't work out because I was always out all night and always broke. And so that's when I became an entrepreneur. And, and you, you've read about my string of failures. That was just one after the other of trying different stuff. I was playing piano gigs at night to support myself. And during the day, I was trying business after business. And uh, finally, when I was 29 years old in 2008, I guess it was a year before, I had opened up these two franchise restaurants with these SBA loans, which here in the United States, it's like government-backed small business administration loans to help young entrepreneurs. And it was 2008, 2007, that was the Great Recession. So I opened my businesses right in the middle of like the the world collapsing. Mm -hmm. So I ended up within a year, I was $495,000 in debt, uh, personally guaranteed debt. I had the the federal government, the U.S. Treasury Department calling me, trying to chase me down for for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm like a piano player. I can't pay that back. And so I, uh, I went on the internet. And I started 
Googling, like how to make money on the internet. Like, I don't know what else to do. And I discovered this was 2008. I discovered this whole emerging world of digital marketing. Hmm. And, you know, I've always been pretty good at teaching myself at a keyboard. So uh, this was just a different keyboard and a different set of, of, of theory to learn. And I taught myself digital marketing and uh, was able to pay off that debt in about 18 months with wow. mostly affiliate marketing and, and doing referral marketing to other people's products and services. And then ever since then, I've just been a digital marketer on the internet. And then, so from 2000, roughly nine to 2018, I had, you know, a, a kind of a string of successes as a, mm. in, in the digital space. Right. And then finally in 2018, I, I, I remember taking stock of my life. I had an opportunity to, to sell my digital agency at the time and, you know, pocket multiple seven figures. I had been making really good money then for like 10 years. And basically I was 39 years old and I was like ready to retire. Mm. And I'm like, man, 10 years ago, I was a broke, homeless jazz musician who was hiding from the government because I owed half a million dollars. Now I'm 39 and I'm considering, I'm strongly considering retiring. Like I had a, I realized I saw it for what it was. That's a pretty amazing story. And I, and yet I look around and so many people in the world, they seem frustrated. They seem stuck. They seem helpless and hopeless. Like, oh, I'm just going to ride it out till maybe I can retire. But if we do the math, we know most people never really get to retire. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to start teaching the world what it is that I've done for the last 10 years, this modern entrepreneurship, how to start a business in the new digital economy and how it cre can create this amazing quality of life. And what started was just shooting some videos on social media and giving away free trainings. At, at one point, I remember somebody like, dude, do you have a course I can buy? Like, can I take your course? And I'm like, oh, I should, I should make a course. And I took two weeks and I made a course. And that course has now sold like 230,000 copies. It's one of the best wow. selling courses in the history of the internet. And it uh, ultimately spawned an entire education platform that, yeah, now is, you know, a nine figure company. And we're one of the fastest growing companies in the world. Kind what, of crazy. A journey. what a journey what a journey and this is this is i i what you've just described I, I read a snippet of it and especially you know the two things which stuck in my mind was genetic issues that's all i, I couldn't figure out what issue but it just said genetic had genetic issues that's what the article said about you mm -hmm. and to a nine-figure company that's a that's a big leap if you think about it and so I want to know what was going in through your, your, you know, your, your, your head when you were this, you know, this 16 year old young, young chap and you're looking at your life and thinking, I don't want what everybody else has. I want something different. How did you, um, how did you instill the confidence in yourself? Because what I find is with most people, they have the best strategies in the world. They have the best mentors or they have all these opportunities and they bomb. They don't go anywhere. And what I find is, is obviously the social, there's a subconscious programming, but the, the way this manifests is lack of confidence, self-confidence. How did you as a 16 year old have the confidence to speak to your parents and say, mom, dad, I, I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to figure out a way. I don't care how, but I'm going to figure out a way. It doesn't matter the fact that you chose piano was just a means to an end. Right. How did you How did you have the confidence, one, to make that decision, two, to speak to your parents about it? And thirdly, more importantly, because people can make decisions, but the gumption, having the gumption to stick through it and come out the other end and actually go and become a musician. It doesn't matter how much money you made. The fact of much is you did and you did succeed. So talk me through what was going through your mind as a 16-year-old. Yeah, I, uh, 
and, and, I'll, and I'll add to the story that when I decided I wanted to be a musician, I dropped out of high school. I, I taught myself for about a year. I did have a, a piano teacher. You know, I took some lessons, but but, you know, that was 30 minutes a week because I, I couldn't I didn't have my parents were like, OK, well, we're only going to like spend a little money, like 30 minutes a week every two weeks. Right. Yeah. But but I mean, I was 10, 12 hours a day. I was teaching myself practicing. Right. And um, when I was 18, I went to the University of Houston and was like, hey, I want to actually enroll in the university. I'd like to get formal training and really as a serious musician. And they just they they laughed at me. Like there is like, don't quit your, well, I didn't have a day job, but like, don't even bother. Like, there's no way there's no, they literally said physically, it is impossible for somebody to start playing the piano at almost 17 years old Mm. and become an elite professional. It's just not biomechanically possible. You're too late. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, and I went back for three years, every semester, six, six semesters, I went back and re-auditioned and re-auditioned and re-auditioned. And eventually I got good enough. They were like, okay, you're in. And I ended up getting a full scholarship to as the, the, the first chair pianist in the jazz orchestra. And I got college completely paid for for 10 years. And, and so anyway, I, I, I say that because it speaks to, I think, my, my actual gift in this world. Mm. I don't think I've done anything that anybody else couldn't do. I think I'm, I mean, there's people, like, I think I'm an intelligent person. I, I know I'm a driven person, but like, I don't have like, I don't have like a 40 inch vertical or like, I can't bench 800 pounds. Like there's nothing inherently superior, but I just don't stop. And I don't accept that anybody else gets to tell me what I believe. I love that. Most of us, I think, go through life accepting other people as a source of our belief and our faith. And the word believe is simply whatever we choose to put our faith in. Yeah. People think that beliefs are like these entrenched things that are like fused into the bedrock of our soul. No, a belief is just what you choose to put your faith in at any given time. And I believe that my the secret to my success actually goes all the way back to that bullying and all the way back to that genetic condition. What did I really have to lose when people don't have the confidence, when people don't aren't aren't willing to bet on themselves? What is it that they're really afraid of? Like we live in a world Nobody's going to die of no. starvation. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't live in Rwanda. God mm-hmm. bless Rwandans. But in America, mm-hmm. was I really worried that I was going to starve to death? Mm-hmm. My parents would have let me move back in. There. No, people are afraid of embarrassment. Yeah. They're afraid of rejection. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of isolation. They're afraid of all this stuff that really is only a matter of interpretation up here. It's a, it's a meaning that we attach to our environment and they're afraid to have an environment that they can attach the meaning to that. Oh, I'm a loser. I screwed up. That's what actually people are afraid of. We're creating the thing that we're afraid of because it's a subjective meaning that we attach to an event or a circumstance that we could interpret a different way. If we chose to attach our faith to different things, i.e. believe in something else. And so, because I had never had anything to lose, I had never felt accepted in the first place. I had no place in the world to lose. So what did I actually have to be afraid of? Why not try to be happy, right? And that's why it's just never occurred to me to try to please anyone else if it contradicted, you know, what I think is right for myself. 
I hope you are enjoying today's episode. If you want to learn more about my mindset strategies and energy tools to help you change your money mindset, then please register for my Abundance Mindset Makeover Workshop by visiting www.abundancemindsetmakeover.com. See you inside the workshop. So what you're saying to me, basically, when you were saying that, what I what I interpreted that to be is in that moment, the epiphany moment that you're talking about when you were 16 is you had a paradigm shift. And, you know, paradigms are just a, a bunch of beliefs that we believe and we don't we don't question them. So they're just, those beliefs are so ingrained in us. And actually, most of those great beliefs, 97 percent, actually, not more are given to us, are programmed into us uh, through our primary uh, caregivers between the ages of zero seven anyway. So that's, right. it's not even our beliefs. It's, it's given to us. Through and, and, and we spend the rest of our lives choosing to hold on to them. I want yes. to be clear about that. Yes, like, of they're, course. They're not, yes. they're not ingrained. They're given. Yeah, because we and don't know. Yeah, the reason why they're paradigms, because we don't even know that there are beliefs. We just believe right. that's how the world works. If I don't know that there's, there's anything away from outside my blinkers, I'm, I'm going to think this is my entire world. We have mm-hmm. to take the blinkers off and realize, oh, the world, I have a peripheral vision. There's the whole world is so much bigger than my actual focused vision. Then that's the only way that I'm going to know that I've limited my vision. If I don't know that, I don't know any better. What you don't know, you don't know. And I think most people yeah. are unaware of the fact that they are operating from these paradigms and paradigms are just a bunch of habits, which we've been given by our primary caregivers and our education system. So I, and this is what I'm going to add in. The education system and the media reinforces these paradigms again and again and again through social programming. So we can have a whole conversation about oh, that. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but coming back to this point, I think what I'm seeing you is I'm seeing the 16-year-old boy who, who had this moment where his paradigm shifted in, in, in terms of I've got nothing to lose I've got nothing to be afraid of I'm going to go and try and do something that's going to make me happy and I think this is a point that very few people get to but this is the reason why you know they say the, the arrow has to shoot back before it goes forward because most people have to get to the point where we've got nothing to lose before they come forward I yeah. know that I've done that in my life and um, the point when I came back after for after my um separate divorce I had literally no money. I was almost, I couldn't get work on welfare. I was stuck at one point and I had two children to feed and I had no option but to move forward. And I did. So mm-hmm. this is the time when you are pushed right at the bottom, you've got no option but to come up. But then it's those moments when you question your beliefs, you question your paradigms and you realize those paradigms are not ingrained into you forever. They're fluid. They can be changed, but you actively have to decide to change your beliefs, change what's possible for you. But most people don't question that, Jeff. Don't you say? Don't you find that most people go on living because my mom said this to me, my teacher said this to me, my wife said this to me, my boyfriend said this to me, my 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 neighbor said this to me, and they, they stay stuck. Whereas you've moved forward because you haven't allowed anyone yeah. to put their beliefs on you. Yeah, and well, and I mean, I had all the same influences. Just, just. None of it. I never felt like any of it applied to me because there was no amount of external conditioning that I could adopt that would ever actually get me the feeling of belonging. Mm. Most people grow up saying, "Okay, if I do enough of the things that I'm being told, I will achieve this sense of belonging. But because I always felt so different, it didn't matter how much stuff that I was told that I did. I was still going to feel different. And I was still going to feel like a, an alien in a, in a foreign land. And so eventually at 16, I just threw up my hands and was like, I'm tired 
of, of being a square peg that is banging himself into a round hole. And I'm not going to live my life this way. And what I have found through the work that I do now, and we, I mean, we've had almost a quarter million students come through the Entra platform, is that you reach a moment in your life. Everybody reaches a moment in their life when they realize I've been a square peg trying to fit into the round hole of what I've been told. Because what I realize is the fundamental problem is when you accept any source of truth other than your own internal truth, you're, you're a square peg trying to fit into a round hole, period, the end. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, there is no, just like say, they say there's a God-shaped hole in your heart, I think truth has a shape, mm. and it's only shaped like you. Oh, that's it's, profound. That's profound. Repeat that, please. I said, just like they say there's a God-shaped hole in the human heart, I mm. think truth has a shape. And for each person, it can only ever be shaped like them. It's only shaped like you. Right. And when we're, when we're trying to cobble together this truth or this wisdom or this path for our life by assimilating all the truths of other people and trying to organize them into a, you know, it's like, it's like trying to build a horse and you end up with a camel. It's not the right shape. The, the right shape is in here. But because I was isolated so young and this was all I had, and these are these stories you hear of like people that, you know, they, they come on, they, they, they arrive on shore with nothing and they go on to build this whatever because they never, they never were allowed, they never got tricked into thinking that anything else could be more true than their truth. Mm. And so anyway, I'm, I'm not trying to be too, too woo-woo. The, the, um, oh, we like woo-woo here. <laughs> I do. I talk about energy work all the time. So we like woo-woo here. <laughs> okay. Well, good. No, because that's, you know, the, the other thing I'll say is just that, you know, if you understand where fear comes from and you talk about confidence, talk about insecurity, whatever it is, it's just, it's just our, our, our reptilian brains trying to keep mm. us alive. Right. You know, we yeah. evolved. Yeah. We literally have the same, I mean, lobsters run on serotonin. Mm. Like when we take an antidepressant, it's a, you know, a, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an SRI drug. We're literally manipulating the same neurotransmitter that drives the behavior of the 350 million year old lobster. Like mm. we are not particularly novel creatures. We think we are, we're not, we just have more processing power. And so when you understand that and you realize that, okay, why am I the way I am? I am the way I am because I evolved to basically take cues from my environment and especially from the people around me, the ones that are still alive, the ones that didn't get eaten by a bear or fall off a waterfall or whatever the you know ancient hazards used to be. I'm going to take the cues from the people around me that, have, that are surviving in this environment and, and allow them to influence what, what I decide on how to survive in this environment. That was a really good strategy for a really long time. But the thing we forget is that evolution is a really slow process. No, so there is a very good chance based on how quickly the world has changed in the last few hundred years and even just in the last few decades, mm -hmm. there is a very good chance that evolution hasn't caught up yet. And that the, the traits that natural selection favors right now are not the ones that we feel like keep us safe. We are still operating off of a multi, many thousands year old operating system around what keeps us safe. It's like, oh, I need to look like everyone else. I need yeah. to do what everyone else does. I need to avoid risk. I need to avoid danger. I need to not be the tallest nail because then I'll get the hammer. But I suspect that, that 10,000 years from now, evolution will have caught up to the way the world has changed, which is there's so many people, there's so much competition there's so much saturation of anything that anyone could possibly do that actually the real like 
evolutionarily valuable trait now is to be different. It's to stand above. It's to be excellent. It's to push ourselves. It's to take risk. It's to choose beliefs that allow us to make bets on ourselves and not be like everyone else. But in 10,000 years from now, it's going to be obvious and they're going to look back on the 21st century and be like, oh, that's when it changed. All those poor saps that still thought that playing it safe was the way to live and the way to thrive sucks for them because they're not even part of the species anymore. Now it's all the badass risk takers. I get like it's going to take a while to prove that out, but I know I'm right about this. I mean, I do understand what you're saying. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that the way we understand fear and, and that's where the programming comes in, the way we understand fear. And, and we, um, you know, most of one of the biggest fears we have is a rejection, as you said. And what the, the fear of rejection is actually physically painful in our, in our, in our physical bodies. And I right. think a lot of the times we are so afraid of rejection. And, I, and when you were saying this, I remember looking back in my own life, I've always been the good girl. Like I've always done everything according to what's right and studied hard and whatever else. And I've always tried to please everyone around me. Always, always, always. And I still didn't fit in. <laughs> I still didn't mm-hmm. fit in. And I'm thinking, and I remember going to the point when I, especially when I was choosing my career I, after my divorce and I realized, okay, I did everything by everyone's according to the book. Now I'm going to do things by my book. And I, when I, cause I'm, I'm, I'm a banking finance lawyer, when I chose to actually go in and pursue a career in the personal development industry, my father even asked me, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're, you're a lawyer. I'm actually, I'm a qualified lawyer in three jurisdictions. What the hell are you doing? And I said to him, like, I've done everything I was going to everyone else. Now I'm going to do what I think is right for me and my kids. And actually one of the motivating factors was the fact I didn't want to go back into doing 80, 90 hours in a law firm. And but I had two young children, but still this was the idea. I've done everything by everyone else's standard and I'm still failing. I'm still a failure because in my culture, I had my, that was my second divorce. No, no fault of my own. And I'm still a failure. I've done everything right. Being the good girl, always good girl. And yet I'm still seen as a taboo because, oh my God, she's been divorced twice. No fault of my own, but still I'm at fault. If that's the case, then I can now go ahead and do something that I want to do and let people think whatever. But I had to get to that point. And you were already at that point at 16. I think this is a big, 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 um, a big mm-hmm. factor for you. Whereas I think most people, as you said, they are so afraid of rejection. They're so afraid of failure and how people will react. They don't allow themselves to take those risks, which even could be calculated risks. They don't have to take um, stupid risks. People can take calculated risks, but people are afraid to take any risk. And as Bob Proctor would say, they tiptoe all the way through life towards the death. And that's what most yeah. people do. Yeah, I, I think the key to understand here is there there is no avoiding rock bottom. You yeah. can only delay it. Yeah. And most people do a pretty good job of delaying it until the very end of their life. Oh, that's that's gonna hit hard. <laughs> yeah, they're laying on their they're laying on their deathbed at rock bottom, knowing woulda, coulda, shoulda, mm-hmm. but I got no more time. Yeah, the tip. My advice: find rock bottom as fast as you can, so that it will activate what you're really capable of. And it, now, now what I'm trying to do in the world is give people the experience, the growth experience that comes from rock bottom and the perspective shift that comes from rock bottom and the opportunities that grow out of rock bottom without actually having to tank their life. Like I am trying to do this in a way that's a little more humane than saying everybody needs to end up addicted to crack living under a bridge so that they can finally <laughs> change you know, with a court order that they can't see their kids. Like that's how some people have to do it. Mm. But like, if you're, if you're not doing that, 
and you're not taking the red pill to open your eyes and do this, then understand all you're doing is delaying rock bottom to the most tragic moment of your life, which is when there's none of it left and you can't do anything about it. Agreed. Agreed. And I never thought of it this way, but I agree. That's exactly what happens to most people. We they do, they do all end up in rock bottom or they end up in being retired. I'm going to share a quick story here before we wrap up. I was speaking to this gentleman and he was, um, I think he's 70 plus. And throughout his life, he's done various, various things. But come you know you know he had done all these entrepreneurial uh, um, endeavors but whatever have you yet at the age of 70 plus he was living with his son with his wife and his son and he was fully financially dependent on his son and I think that was his rock bottom because I think in throughout his life exactly what he said he didn't take those um, he didn't hit the rock bottom the way he needed to he hit it at the age of well he wasn't dead yet but he was close to it in his mid-70s um, and he was he was ashamed. He was humiliated because even though he was this amazing entrepreneur, now he was fully financially bankrupt and fully financially dependent for himself and his wife on his grown son. And I think this, that story we really highlighted, what you need to do is achieve and go out for your goals early on, not to have those regrets on coming up close to your deathbed. And there's no reason why a 70 year old should be on a deathbed, but I think he made himself can get to that that point because he was so humiliated and so ashamed of where he was at the moment in time. Yeah, I, I hear that. And, and it makes me think, like, what is the point of life? I think that a lot of people operate like the point of life is to not die Ooh. because we're like, oh, well, I need I need more money. So I have more security. So I have more assurance. So I have more comfort so I can afford better, better medical care so I can take care of my kids because even if inevitably when I do die, I still want to not die because I live on in my kids and my bloodline continues. And like, like, like this is all just a game of hanging in there. Wow. I don't think that is like whatever the creative impetus was that got this thing started. I don't think it was, I am going to engineer an organism and I'm going to give it sentience and I'm going to give it consciousness and I'm going to give it the ability to ask profound existential questions about its environments, you know, levels of reasoning that no other species has, I'm going to create this thing so that it can play the game of hanging on. That would make no sense. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think that our sense of sense was given to us to be in contradiction to the larger sense of what makes sense. If it doesn't make sense to us, I think that's because it's not actually how it is. I don't think that we were given like our intellect as a way to trick ourselves, Mm. right? There would be no no sort of grand cosmic point to an experiment of just let me give a species this level of cognition, but still have no greater imperative than simply to survive. We're obviously meant to do something else. What is it that we're meant to do? And I think that what we're meant to do is to find within ourselves the connection point to whatever that source is and figure out a way to unpack it and get it out into the world so that we can build something different than what would have been if only natural forces had been at play. Wow. And so if you're going to live your whole damn life trying to make a six-figure income so that you have a better chance of not dying, you're already dead. I agree. I agree. What a profound, what a profound point. And we have to carry this conversation on again in, in Money Talkies because I think that's something that we definitely need to have a, a deeper, insightful conversation about. But let's wrap this up for today. Um, any yeah. parting thoughts or any parting advice from you, Jeff? 
Yes, uh, I, I have a strong conviction about this. So one of my favorite quotes is by Mark Twain, and he says, the two most important days of a human life are the day that you're born and the day that you figure out why. And that second day, the day that you figure out why I believe is it very often coincides with a rock bottom or some kind of catharsis. And it's that moment when you realize there's this connected energy and it's clearly more than just a biological survival. And I'm I'm here for a purpose. And like, right. This, yeah. And we kind of know it when we see it, right. It's this amazing moment of of epiphany or revelation or whatever you want to call it. I think that my parting advice would be, I don't think you can insist upon or force that moment in your life. Mm. It comes when it comes. But what you can do is you can create the conditions that allow it to arrive. And if you don't create the conditions, then I think you're that scenario where rock bottom is the last moment of your life, knowing there's no time left and it should have been different. But if you do create the conditions, then you have an opening, you have a, a potential to have this awareness, to have this awakening, and, and forever be transformed and to never again be like, you can never revisit rock bottom twice. Once you've had this moment, you can never go all the way back into despair, into the existential void. And the way you create the conditions is through consistency, through discipline, through thoughtfulness, through simplification, through almost like a minimalist reductionist approach to life where I say, okay, what is the essence of what I need in order to become who I can be. And let me get rid of anything that else that isn't that. Mm -hmm. And then you actually have the stillness in which your purpose can appear. And once it appears, now you're alive. Well, and on that note, we're going to wrap this episode up. So Jeff, um, please tell everybody, how can we connect with you? Where can we find you on the internet? Uh, Jeff Lerner Official on every platform but Twitter, that's too long of a name for Twitter. They have like limits. So it's the Jeff Lerner on Twitter, but otherwise it's Jeff Lerner official Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. Wonderful. And if you are listening to us on the podcast today, then we will have all the links for Jeff on the in the show notes. And if you are watching us on YouTube, then down below in the description, description section, we will have his links as well. Go check him out. He is one phenomenal personality, an amazing person. And I do recommend you follow him because I do. He's amazing. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being such an amazing guest today. But we have to have you back for Money Talkies. We have to have we have to carry on this conversation. Um, but thank you for today. No, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to me and Jeff today. I will be back with another amazing guest for a Friday feature segment, asking them how they change their life by changing their mindset. Until the next time we meet, this is Gokhan signing off. Take care and bye for now. If you want to learn more about my energy tools and mindset strategies, then please visit my website www.gulkhan.com and if you want to take part in our five-day abundance mindset makeover workshop where I deep dive into energy tools for abundance then please go to www.abundancemindsetmakeover.com and register. I look forward to being your mentor in the next workshop and if you want to learn about the spiritual laws of money then go and get my book Laws of Money from www.lawsofmoney.com. Until the next time we meet, this is Gul Khan signing off. Take care and bye for now.